Welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a WCCM podcast from Bonneville, a center for peace. I am Elba Rodriguez. In this episode, Dr. Barry White presents his ideas and developmental work on bringing a contemplative practice across the main domains of healthcare. This talk was part of a Jean Main seminar in Bruges, Belgium. Dr. White is a consultant hematologist and member of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. So I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you to start with. Despite the fact that my name is Barry White, I won't be singing, <laughs> playing any jazz, or playing any blues. What I'm going to be talking to you about is a contemplative approach to healthcare. And I'll give you some of the theory at the start, and then at the end of the talk, I will give you some of the empirical evidence around the work that we've done and its impact, and therefore it's, and I think its potential going forward. So many people um, ask, when was the golden age of medicine? Well, the golden age of medicine and healthcare, if it's any time, it's now. This is a graph of life expectancy over the last 2,000 years. And you can see here is uh, the years of life expectancy and here is the dates. So from, um, from, the, from AD, you see that life expectancy runs at about 25 years up until uh, about two or three hundred years ago. And you might wonder, why is it so low? Surely I've heard of loads of people who lived old ages in, in those earlier times. The main reason is the catastrophic infant mortality and childhood mortality rates. So once you got beyond the age of five, your life expectancy was more like 45. What we see over this period of time, over the last 300 years, a remarkable increase in world life expectancy. And in the developed world, life expectancy is over 80 years of age. And in fact, in the last 10 years, life expectancy has increased by two and a half years. And so this is a remarkable feat um, for humanity that we've been able to develop the tools that have increased our life expectancy. And a lot of it has been driven by the development of natural sciences over the last three or 400 years. A very much reductionistic approach. So, so breaking things down and looking at the component parts and trying to fix them. So not all the increase in life expectancy has been driven by medicines. A lot of it has been driven by the natural sciences contribution to sanitation, to food production, to shelter. But over the last 100 years, we've had really the emergence of modern medicine, especially over the last 50 or 60 years. And this has led to very dramatic improvements in, in both the quality of life and life expectancy. So life expectancy, as I said, has gone up to by threefold over the period of time in this part of the world. And childhood mortality has uh, dropped 
very significantly. So this sort of reductionistic approach is very much in contrast to the, a, a holistic approach, which very much looked at uh, the whole rather the com than the component parts. And the idea being that the whole was, was different and perhaps even greater than the sum of the, of the parts. And it's this sort of more holistic approach, though these were not the terms that were used at the time, that would have driven um, a, the more ancient approach to medicine. And the more ancient approach to medicine, which persisted for the, 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 that 2,000 years, in fact, the last 2,000 years up until the turn of the 20th century, was based around this idea that the blood and other bodily fluids were humors that needed to be maintained in balance. And the main intervention to, to address this was bloodletting. And the idea was that bloodletting would, would reset that balance. And not surprisingly, there was no real impact from bloodletting on life expectancy. This is a medical textbook from the 16th century. And despite the lack of empiric evidence to support bloodletting, it did not impair in any way the industry or imagination of the physicians and the barbers at the time. And this diagram is an illustration of all the parts of the body that you would let blood from for various ailments. I, I, actually, this, this, this sort of particular intervention makes me sort of slightly nervous, to say the least. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the, uh, what the maladies that these remedies were seeking to address. The barber's pole reflected the fact that these were the bandages that the, because the physicians were, this was, physicians would think about it, but they wouldn't dirty their hands by the actual bloodletting themselves, so they get the barbers very often to bloodlet. Um, and the barber's pole uh, comes from the, um, the tourniquets that they would use that would be blood-soaked and they'd leave them out to dry outside. So it's almost, there's, there's no evidence that bloodletting would have, would have had any benefit in any situation, which is remarkable when you consider the fact there were 2,000 years of physicians' careers, families raised, reputations earned on the basis of it, and it's a, real, uh, it's a real instruction to us on, on the fallacies of, the, of science at times, you know, that this was, I suppose, pre-natural science, but the capacity for professionals to, to proceed in a way that has no, no evidence that it works. And it almost certainly caused quite a lot of harm. And probably the most famous victim was George Washington. So at the age of 65, George Washington had what sounds like acute epiglottitis, which is a bacterial infection of the upper airway, which would have compromised his breathing. And a 65-year-old in those days would have been uh, a lot different to a 65-year-old now. So he had greater than 60% of his blood volume taken out of him, or let, in a space of 10 hours by his physicians. And he died, not surprisingly. And of course, hemoglobin, which is in your blood, one of its primary functions is to bring oxygen around the body. So if he had an airway obstruction, his oxygen may have been compromised, and then at the same time they were reducing the capacity of his 
of his blood to carry oxygen around. So I think it just goes to show, just because you're, you're famous, you don't get killed by the doctors. <laughs> you just get killed by the most famous doctors. <laughs> Clearly, when we look at this, he's, in this portrayal, he, he looks like he's not the only one that's had a bit of bloodletting, actually. <laughs> so in any event, the advent of modern science and the scientific methods and, and um, and very much a reductionistic approach, in fact, to healthcare has led to very dramatic breakthroughs. Dramatic breakthroughs that are very much a good. So we had antibiotics, we had vaccinations, we've a range of pharmacological and pharmaceutical breakthroughs. We've had the advent of transfusion medicine, which in turn supported uh, an anesthesia, which supported surgery and intensive care. And even in my own area, hematology, um, and hemophilia in particular, in, um, you know, the life expectancy of somebody with hemophilia was 20 years. And they had enormous pain and suffering. And in, in 1986, following an incredibly reductionistic approach, the gene for uh, factor VIII was identified. In about 1996, we had what was, what was cloned factor VIII or recombinant factor VIII. In other words, we were able to take the gene, put it into some cells in a laboratory and produce the protein that was missing in a laboratory. And in the last two years, we've had the advent of gene therapy where a single treatment dose um, into an adult resulted in the normalization of, of, of the factor VIII levels. So, so this was very much, this is very much focusing in a very reductionistic way, not in the whole person, but in just a narrow focus on that gene, and as a consequence, a remarkable treatment and a remarkable advance. Another example in my own area is, is leukemia. Um, my cousin, who was the same age as me, got leukemia when he was four and died. And he died with the only treatment he would have got would have been steroids. So in that same hospital that he died in, uh, that I'm, a, I'm appointed to, he, the life expectancy of children with acute leukemia is greater than 90%. So, th so these are, are major, major advances in healthcare. Obviously, it wasn't all plain sailing um, along the way. In um, Bayer Pharmaceuticals uh, uh, produced aspirin for the first time in about 18, in the 18, end of the 19th century, 1880s. And two weeks later, they used this, the same biochemical method to produce another compound, which they thought was going to be a great blockbuster and a treatment for coughs. And there were a lot of coughs at that time, whooping coughs and a range of pneumonia. And it was tested by the marketing department. They took it and they named it after how it made them feel. And this drug <laughs> is called heroin. And this is the um, advert for heroin. So it's, it's adapted for the manufacture of cough elixirs, cough drops, lozenges, etc. Quite expensive, actually. But it's the cheapest specific for the relief of coughs. If you want any literature, if you have any concerns about whether this has been tested, you can write for the literature to this company. And this is 1901. Now, presumably, you wouldn't have been told that you become addicted to it. If you, um, it will destroy your life, and um, you, if you take too much, you'll stop breathing. 
And this is an advert from the time. <laughs> so, Teresa, the um, pharmaceutical industry was active over 100 years ago. <laughs> anyway, despite the fact that there have been these major advances, and they're very good, we sometimes feel like we're not living in the golden age of healthcare. And perhaps it is because of these great advances. So the very, the, the, these great advances are the seeds of the crisis that we experience in healthcare. And if you look at healthcare, you can look at healthcare in a range of different domains. For simplicity, I've just broken them into four domains. The first area is quality and safety. So am I giving the right treatment? Am I doing something which is safe? In other words, if I shouldn't use a drug, am I using it or am I not using it? The second area is the whole area of patient experience. So that relates to what we might call the service element. You know, am I seen efficiently and, and or do I have to wait a long period of time? But also speaks to something deeper, which is the whole area of compassion and relationship. The third area is affordability. So we hear a lot about this. Healthcare systems are unaffordable. They'll break the, they'll break the, they'll break the, the company or the country. And the final area, which has been added in in more recent years, is the whole area of staff experience. And this is something I'm going to come to at the end. If you've got staff who are burnt out, we now know that they're not safe. They're not as safe. They result in poorer experience for patients, and they cost more money so they spend more money unnecessarily. So a burnt-out staff member has a f profound impact, not just on themselves and their family, but also on the system that they're working in. So if we start with quality and safety, there's a famous paper in 2001, which is to air as human from the Institute of Medicine in the United States. And that's the first time the crisis in quality and safety was called out in healthcare. And at that time, it was estimated that 100,000 people died as a result of deficits within the healthcare system in the US. So that is acts or omissions. For example, I give you a drug that I shouldn't give you a drug in because you got renal failure and that makes it worse. Or you've got high blood pressure and I don't treat your high blood pressure with the appropriate medication that has been proven in evidence-based studies. And around this time, there's also data to suggest that 50% of people with common diseases are not on the right treatment. So there's obviously, over the last number of years, there's, there's quite a backlash, because medicine, I have to say, is still advancing quicker than the deficits. Okay? So, but if you're practicing medicine, that's not a nice statistic to hear. Now, these statistics were developed by doctors themselves. They're not some bureaucrats that have walked in and looked at the charts. And they've been reviewed, and in fact, it appears that it, the 100,000 may be an underestimate rather than an overestimate. So it's estimated in some quarters that it may be the lead, fourth leading cause of death within the healthcare system, the healthcare system itself. Now, the response to many people to that is that it could just is not true. I don't believe that. <coughs> the second thing that, that 
people would respond to is, well, that might be true for some parts of medicine, but it's nothing to do with my area. <laughs> the third response is, well, it, as they're getting progressively aware, it might relate to my area, but it's not my fault. It's the manager. It's the system. I'm poorly treated. I don't get enough funding. I'm understaffed. And then eventually, a very small percentage of people arrive at the point which is, yes, there are challenges around quality and safety in the service that I work in, and I have a responsibility and a capacity and a capability to improve that. And when I was in leadership roles within the health system, we, we set up the you know, training programs because there are technical solutions to help clinicians in this area. And very often, though, it's like pushing string. So people you know, go through that cycle of, of really not, will, not being willing to, to, to engage in the idea that healthcare that they could be providing and very well-trained people could be unsafe in certain aspects. So the question is, what's going on here? Because these people are very well-intentioned. They're not sociopaths. They went into medicine to help people. They're intelligent. So what's going, in, going on here is, is a problem with awareness. If we look at patient experience, a lot of healthcare systems have, um, and, and maybe just to focus on compassion, there is a narrative that healthcare is less compassionate than it used to be. And it's hard to find empiric evidence to refute that or affirm it. However, people who've worked in that system for many years, many of them would say that is the case. It is not as compassionate as it, as it used to be. So much so that a number of healthcare systems have taken to training their staff in compassion. Now, you can train people to fake compassion. You can train them to look at the patient and don't look at the computer screen. To ask a person how they're getting on and ask them do they have any questions. These are actually good things. But I think what we're looking at from a compassion perspective is something which is deeper than that, which is a deeper relational experience. And as an example, if somebody walked across, if, if a frail older person walked across in front of us with a whole load of shopping bags and fell on the ground, we would all go to help them because compassion is our true nature. And compassion is the true nature of people who are working in healthcare systems. So when that system of where they are acting without compassion, they are not acting out of their, they're, they're, are, they are not acting out of their true nature. So, it com so it, this comes back to the same concept, which is, it's a, it's a level, the crisis or the challenge here is a challenge in awareness. It's a challenge in, in terms of their connection to their true nature.
And if we look at affordability, there have been a number of studies looking at this. And it's estimated that between 25 and 35% of expenditure in healthcare systems is redundant, it's waste. And we know at the same time that we cannot get healthcare access, even in the developed world, we cannot service all the people that need uh, healthcare access. We don't have enough money, we don't have enough resources. We have waiting lists. And that's before we get into the developing world. So waste or redundant ex expenditure has a real cost, a real human cost. And again, the problem very often is that when people are working in a healthcare system, they're so stressed, they're just like, I can just manage what is in front of me. I can't sort out this whole system. Yeah, well, what if the prosthesis you're using is 4,000 or 5,000 euros for a knee replacement as opposed to 2,000 euros. Well, I, I just want to do that because I'm used to that prosthesis. Look, it's not my problem. Go and fix all the waste elsewhere in the system rather than talking to me about me changing to use a, a, a sort of what may be an inferior prosthesis when in fact they're not necessarily inferior because your colleague is using them and they get the same results. So this narrative goes on quite a lot in healthcare. And again, it comes back to this whole concept of, of awareness. It's, it's, it's a challenge, it's a crisis in, in awareness. So if we were to look at awareness in terms of being, okay? So being is, a, is pure awareness. And if we were looking to look at doing, as our actions. So that means our thoughts and our words and what we're doing. For our actions to be justified, true and optimal, we need a harmony between our being and doing. And the nature of that harmony is that being is dominant, that being is sovereign, and our, and our actions or our doings are coming out from the depth of our being. Then we're aware. Not just aware, but we're acting on the basis of our awareness. Which is the, what's, what's missing here in, the, in the, uh, health, the, the challenges within the health system. On the other hand, if our doings, or our actions are dominant, we spin out of control. And in that, we will only be loosely tethered to our deeper being. We will lack peace, so we'll be more agitated. We'll be less aware, so we're more narrow. And we're firmly in the realm of the ego in this space. And in that realm, we'll be focusing on our more selfish desires. So I need to get paid. I need money. I need to be recognized. I need to be promoted. And the other side of that, which is fear, which is I'm afraid that I won't get promoted. I'm afraid that I will lose my income. I'm afraid that people won't recognize me and appreciate me. And perhaps most importantly, it generates this sense of separateness. 
separateness from my true self, separateness from the people that I'm working with, separateness from the patients I'm treating, and, and separateness from the wider world and the creative energy of the universe, or God. And seeking meaning in this space where doing is, is dominant is a futile exercise. The more we engage in it, the worse it gets. So you can keep working to try and find more meaning, but you're not going to find it. You can publish as many papers as you want. You can get up to 1,000 papers, 2,000 papers. Your impact factor could go through the roof. Ultimately, it's not going to give you meaning. It'll give you a transitory hit, but not meaning. Whereas when being is sovereign, we're in the realm of what the wisdom traditions call the true self. We experience peace, clarity of vision, reduction in selfish desire and fear, and a sense of unity and community. So it's this level of awareness where being is dominant that is necessary to optimally leverage all the great reductionistic solutions so that we can enhance the delivery of healthcare. The second area I want to look at is the area of self-care. So this is another area where we are losing the battle for regulation. So if we look at the commonest causes of morbidity, which is illness and death, and the commonest causes of, uh, commonest sources of expenditure in healthcare systems, they're on a small number of diseases. So they're on the cardiovascular disease, which diabetes would be part of because it just enhances your risk of cardiovascular disease. It would be in the area of, of respiratory diseases, especially smoking-related respiratory diseases. And it's in the area of cancer. And each of these areas are being driven by about eight potentially preventable risk factors. And they are diet, exercise, and weight, both collectively and independently. Substance abuse in the form of cigarettes, alcohol, and then other risk factors such as diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol, which in turn are related to the first three, the diet, exercise, and weight, at least hypertension and diabetes is. So in a sense, the, there are these five big behaviors that are driving a lot of healthcare expenditures, and they are the diet, the exercise, the weight, alcohol, and smoking. And there's very few people, I think, left that think smoking 100 cigarettes a day and drinking a bottle of whiskey is good for you. Most people, I suspect, also are aware of the fact that we should have a normal body weight, that we should exercise regularly, and that we should eat a good diet. There's a further discussion around how medicine is, is advising people on nutrition, but that's another day's discussion. So what's going on? So why do we have an obesity epidemic? So, and I think again, 
this speaks to the fact that are we spiraling out into the doing where doing is dominant what do we need to address this there are technical solutions that can help us and I appreciate weight is a, is a particularly difficult area so it's influenced by a range of factors such as your, the, the foods that you might have eaten as a childhood, the length of time you may be carrying weight because the body may defend your weight, the fact that you may have more of a tendency to eat when you're stressed than somebody else, the fact that you may have more of a tendency to put on weight than somebody else. But essentially weight is related to intake and the type of food we eat. So, so these are um, challenges that are not without technical solutions, but there's the, you could argue that something that's missing here is, is an awareness. Similar to the type of awareness that I talked about in terms of how we run our healthcare systems. So an awareness where, where being is primary and where our actions are flowing from the depth of our being. The same issue applies with medication management. So only 50% of people take the medicines they're prescribed. So this is another part of, of our, um, I suppose, our, of our inability to, to be regulated. And, and this, I would argue, is, is in turn related to sort of, sort of this deeper sense of awareness and how our actions are connected to, to our level of awareness or our being. So, the argument here is, or the hypothesis is, that if we had this enhanced level of awareness where we had a harmony between being and doing, where being was primary, would ensure that, that we use the technical solutions and our, and our knowledge to ensure that our actions were optimal for our self-care as well. Now, third area of healthcare that I want, and third and last sort of key theme that I want to address is the elephant in the room. And there's a fundamental question that needs to be asked in healthcare, and that is, what is health? And what is healing? And is it all technical solutions, or is there something deeper? So this is the definition of, um, of what health is from 1948. And the reason why it's a quite an important definition, it was put there for a very good reason, it was more around human rights. The reason why it's a very important definition is because it's a pervasive view of what health is. So a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being. Now the problem with that view of health is that, as many of you I'm sure have noticed, it's very hard to be in that state. So even when we don't have an illness, we're suffering perhaps from boredom. But more importantly, it's diametrically opposed to the trajectory of our lives, which is we get older, if we're lucky, we accumulate illnesses. Yes, we have treatments that might cure those, then 
ultimately they won't cure them, and then we've treatments that might help but not cure, and then eventually we've no treatments. But ultimately we die, and that's our natural trajectory. So therefore we are all on we are all unhealthy by that definition. And all that definition does for me would be to speak to the futility of a life that is based on that definition of health. There's a second problem with it, and that is it distracts us from that which potentially defines humanity. And what potentially defines humanity is our capacity for healing, our capacity for self-healing. Seamus Heaney is an Irish poet. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And he was in the Royal College of Physicians, where most of this work was done before he died. And he was asked, did he have a message for doctors? And he said, yes, I do. And he quoted from the Cura Troy, which is a verse adaptation of a play called Philoctetes by Sophocles. And he wrote this verse adaptation inspired by Nelson Mandela. And it's quoted on many occasions. That's the one where hope and, and uh, history rhyme. But for me, this is the important lines. And these are the lines that he, he quoted. He said, you need to believe more in miracles, cures, and healing wells. Call the miracle self-healing. So in other words, you need to believe more in a miracle. And the miracle you need to believe in is self-healing. And then it goes on to describe what self-healing is. The utter self-revealing double take of feeling. So utter self-revealing means it's coming from within. This is not something I go into the pharmacy with my prescription and can I have healing three times a day, please. So it's coming from within me, utter self-revealing. Even that term self-revealing, if you think about it, is so um, contemplative. Double take of feeling. So what does he mean by double take of feeling? So if you've got cancer, you've still got cancer. If you're at the end of your life, you're still at the end of your life. The double take of feeling is that you're seeing the same thing differently. In other words, your shift, there's a shift in your level of awareness. There's a shift in your level of consciousness. And that's healing. So we need to differentiate the technical, what I'm calling here for the point of view of naming, is uh, cure and healing. So we know what cure is, or we know what the technical solutions are, and I want those. So I want my gene therapy, and I want my chemotherapy to treat leukemia. 
I want the antibiotic if I've got a pneumonia. I want my leg fixed if I break it. They're all really good. I don't want to throw those out. Healing is different. And healing can occur when I don't have an illness, when I do have an illness and I'm getting cured and the treatment is working great. Healing can occur when the treatment is not working. And healing can occur when I'm dying. And healing can occur, and very often does occur, at the point of death itself. Healing is very much experiential. And healing is very much rooted in this space of being. This deep awareness. Now, it's hard to put words and names around a concept such as healing. But what I've tried to do is put words that, I suppose, different traditions, from poets to philosophers or um, uh, mystics, would have described. And healing. I think is, is certainly uh, peaceful. Healing is associated with an increased ability to see clearly with awareness. Healing is associated with a reduction in, in the ego, where the self is rising above the ego. It's associated with a reduction, therefore, in selfish desire and the other side of that coin, which is the fear of the loss of those desires. And healing, probably most importantly, relates this sense of, of unity, the experience of, of unity. So the capacity for us to see unity through the illusion of multiplicity and diversity. What Teresa was talking about, Jesus in his, I let them be one with me as I am one with you what the Upanishads talk about, the unit of state. And healing is in many ways the practical application of non-duality. It's non-duality in practice. Because this experience of unity is a non-dual experience. I am Connect. I see the world, I see the unity, I am connected to it. I am still different, but I am not two. I'm not one, I'm not two. So healing is, is an example of non-duality living within the science of medicine. More than living, underpinning. So the next question is, so how do we get to this state? How do we experience this deeper level of awareness? And there is a relationship between attention, which is the primary thing that leads to awareness. Awareness, 
meaningful relationships leading to meaning, leading to healing. So I'll start with, with attention. So attention leads to awareness. So think about what attention means to you. Think about what it feels like when somebody gives you absolute attention. Your level of awareness grows within you. And think about what happens when somebody blanks you, gives you no attention whatsoever. How much narrower you feel or narrower your perspective on the world is. Think about a child who's given attention and how they grow in awareness and a child who's given no attention. So attention leads to awareness. The purer the attention, the greater the awareness. So what is pure attention? Pure attention is attention without attachment. So what do I mean by that? If I'm paying attention to you because I want you to pay me something, I'm selling you a suit or, I don't know, house. The purity of that attention will not lead to awareness. Whereas if I'm giving you attention for nothing in return, well then the quality of that attention and the quality of the awareness that ensues is fundamentally different. And attention has the capacity to create awareness, not just in the object of the attention, the person who's the object of the attention, but also in the person who is the subject of the attention. And I was given this talk once, and the best example of it came from the person who was chairing it, chairing the meeting. And she gave us a personal story where she was looking after her father, who was at the end stages of Alzheimer's, and he was dying. And she was um, washing him in his bed. So she was getting nothing back from him, obviously. He didn't recognize her. He was a shell of him, his former self. And he looked up at her and he said, I can see love in your eyes. And what this is speaking to is the fact that the purity of her attention created an awareness within him, in, the, in his depth, the depth of his being. And that connection created aware, an, an enhanced awareness in her and led to an enhanced meaning in their relationship, that meaningful relationship. 
and led to meaning for both of them and led to healing for him and led to also healing for her. So there's different types of attention that we can give that will bring us into this space of enhanced awareness. One of them, I suppose, is knowledge. So we are all here and I've been listening to talks. That has raised awareness within me. I can read the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, the Gospels, and these are texts that will create awareness in me around the, the, the deeper realities of, of the world. So knowledge can create awareness. Knowledge perhaps has a lot of baggage with it. A lot of attachments can come with it. So another activity that can lead to awareness is selfless service or selfless action. And of course, this was very much the activity of, of many of the Christian religious orders, especially the uh, female religious orders. The selfless, selfless action leading to an experience of God and enhanced awareness. And the third area, I suppose, our third type of attention that can lead to enhanced awareness is meditation. Or other forms of prayer. And meditation is a particularly pure form of attention because it is attention without thought. It is attention without image. So in other words, it is attention without attachment. And as we were discussing in the silent retreat, or Lawrence was discussing, I should say, in the silent retreat, because we were silent, um, the, um, we, we can, of course, get attached to meditation. You know, so somebody says, well, I don't agree with meditation. I think it's this. Well, you can't do that. So we, we seek to own it, and then we defend it, or we're looking for results from it. But the actual practice properly Meditation is pure attention and has this capacity to create an awareness within us and a space where our being where we are we, are, we, we, we enter a space where being is dominant or sovereign. So when our bodies are so what is awareness? Well I suppose the I think I'm not going to spend too long on it. I, th I think when our bodies are still, when our minds, when our senses are still, when our mind is still, meaning the superficial thoughts in our head, when our deeper intellect is still, this is the highest state of the wise. So that comes from the Katha Upanishad. Or you can have be still and know that I'm God from the, from the uh, uh, Christian Judaism. So this enhanced awareness, well, clearly it's of benefit because I can see more clearly. 
so I can see the physiological, social, and psychological factors that are at play. What if I'm treating a patient and can act with discretion and appropriate competence? Discretion meaning there's a time for different types of action. And so if somebody's in front of me and their blood pressure is dropping and their heart rate's going up and they're vomiting blood, that is not the time to talk to them about the meaning of life. <laughs> so that's where I need to get the lines in and the gastroenterologist to scope the patient and get blood ordered. But there will be other times where, where it's appropriate to, to look at the person in the broader context. But ultimately, that awareness is necessary for, for me to experience healing and for me to facilitate the experience in other people of healing by giving them attention. So one of the obvious questions is, what is going on? Why do we, why do we keep sort of defaulting to... Why, why do we need to have a contemplative practice? Um, and I find the myth of the Garden of Eden very helpful in this. I think it's a great insight. So if we think of, they start off living in pure being. They eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So they were the first scientists then, first philosophers, first theologians. They were trying to understand and acquire knowledge of good and evil. And this is our nature, is to seek knowledge. But when we seek knowledge, we enter into the realm of doing. And when we enter into that, our doing can be dominant. So that can lead to separation. So the first thing they noticed is they are naked, they're separate from each other. And that separation from each other lead, leads to murder in the next generation. They're separate from the land, so they're going to use the land now, they're going to till it. And they were separated from God, the creative energy of the universe. But you can't go back into the womb. So what we need to do is, is to be able to transcend this and incorporate and integrate our actions and our being. So we are defaulted, or we keep defaulting into this state of doing, and we need to pull ourselves back. And this, for me, is the, is the real lesson and the teaching behind it, into, a spa into, this, into this space where being is, is, is sovereign. And if we go into healthcare, all the great advances of healthcare. So if our, even with the desert tradition and the seers going into the forests and the Upanishads, we know that they encountered enormous distraction. They were doing, in other words, their thoughts were at them the whole time. So that is, that is our base state. Then if on top of that you throw all these fantastic new advances. So instead of just having one, no diseases I can treat, other than with the blood lighting, which doesn't even work, I now have thousands of conditions I can treat. I have thousands of diagnoses I can make. 
and have tens of different specialists arriving to, to, to help look after the patient that I'm, I'm caring for. So this is a complex environment. And certainly our response to stress is not to become more aware, is to narrow. Presumably that's when we're being chased by the lines on the planes. You know, the main job is get off the plane. So we keep getting pushed to this space where instead of, we're doing as dominant and instead of pure attention, we've, we've just got this, like I'm just gonna, I've got quite a lot of attachments with my attention and I'm gonna narrow in and be more sort of concentrated. My awareness is gonna be more limited. My relationships become functional. I'm doing this because I need to get paid, because I need to get through a waiting list. And there's a lack of meaning and there's no healing in that, even though I might have technical cures. And this is not just true in medicine, it's true in all areas of, of life. So we need something to lift us up out of that space and shift us back to the right, left, what you're looking at. To where this being is, is dominant and sovereign. And we know that we need to do that. We need a practice to do that, not just once a week or once a month or once a year. We need to be doing that every day. In fact, we need to be doing that at least twice a day. And we also need to be, in all our actions, thinking about it. So the challenge, in, in a sense, in healthcare the crisis is a crisis of awareness, and it's a crisis of where doing has become dominant. And the idea of contemplative medicine would be healthcare and self-care, where we rest our technical solution on a bed of enhanced awareness. So, do we need empiric evidence as to whether this works or whether we should do this? Well, I, for one, I'm not sure about you, if I'm sick, I would like to go to a doctor who's peaceful, who's aware, who's not consumed by selfish desire or fears, and who does not feel um, disconnected. I want to go to somebody who's peaceful, aware, lack of selfish desires or fears and is connected both to themselves, to the people they work with in a meaningful way and to the people they care for. So I actually don't need empiric evidence to support that type of, of care. Nevertheless, we, um, I'm going to show you some. And over the last number of years, Lawrence and myself, I've been his able assistant um, there's mainly Lawrence. We've been teaching um, meditation to uh, healthcare professionals. And uh, that's doctors and nurses and people who are working in, the, in, in administration. And we've run possibly 10 programs at this stage in different formats from one days to a diploma type format over a year. <laughs> 
And the reason why we've continued to run them is because the response has been uh, incredibly positive. And a lot of people said, including my own consulting colleagues, it was the most important thing that they learned in their whole medical practice. And it changed the way they viewed their work and changed the way they were viewed. So I'm going to give you some qualitative data and then I'm going to focus on the quantitative data. This is just um, some qualitative data that our nursing staff did around a meditation group that, that was in my own unit where I work. And these are the sort of comments from uh, the first theme of, of the qualitative research. So it's a calming way to start the day. I associate meditation with work in a nice way, not a bad way. It helps me to focus. It diffuses anxiety. It's time for yourself. I really look forward to it. It brings the team together in a positive way. By the end of the session, we see to seem to come together and regroup as a team. I feel closer to the nursing staff. That was an admin person. There's something very powerful about sitting together with others. It's more like a community when we sit together. Another theme is meditation is a tool that I use to cope with stress. When I'm anxious, I use meditation to cope better. One of the, um, one of the staff in the emergency department uh, commented that when they were, got the call for the you know, people who've been brought in dead or they're brought in with a cardiac arrest outside the hospital and they're waiting for them to arrive, that, that she had taken to sort of saying their mantra as they're waiting for the person to come in because very often that person isn't going to survive and then you've got a lot of trauma associated with the family and you've got a long resuscitation preceding that. It gives you more confidence. Um, you're not so reactive. You don't get whipped up by other people's reactions. It's a great way to start it. After meditation, you can have a good discussion in the huddle. The huddle is a safety program that we run. And it's about predicting what unsafe things could happen during the day. So they meditated first to increase their awareness. Then they, then they went into their safety huddle to try and make their, their working day and their patients safer. Makes you more aware of what's going on in other people's lives. We're extra nice to patients. The silence is a practice. Practicing has made me a better listener. I'm not so concerned with what I want to say. I'm more compassionate and not so critical. So these are probably not surprising to people who, who meditate. So this is a, the results I'm going to show you is we, we, we then decided to, to go into a totally reductionistic mode. And we're going to do a randomized control trial in uh, the emergency department. I suppose there's a few things to say about the emergency department. Emergency departments are the sort of center of crisis within a health system. That's where things back up. So if the hospital system is failing, there isn't enough beds, people are coming through the front door of the hospital into the emergency department, and you get overcrowding because they can't get up to the wards. So the people in, those in that department, the emergency department, are looking after 
patients who've come in with emergencies, patients who've come in with minor injuries, and then people who should be on wards but are now being managed within the emergency department. So it's an incredibly stressful environment, and without a doubt, it is a crisis, and it's a crisis in many healthcare systems. It's unacceptable, it's unsafe, it's not good for patients, it's bad for, uh, for staff, uh, and it's actually ineffective from a cost point of view. So that's the first thing to say about it. So the, we, we, we did a randomized control trial. What a randomized control trial means, you're, con, you're, you're randomizing people to an intervention and you're randomizing them to a control. So the control was no meditation and the intervention was meditation. And they got four teachings of meditation and the study was over a 12-week period of time. Um, there were a range of uh, people who were, who were participants of it. Um, Meditatio and uh, Fitbit was a um, Fitbit came in to provide Fitbits to all the staff so we could measure various physiological phenomena as they were meditating and um, I suppose just a few key highlights the first thing is that 60 people enrolled in the study which is greater than a third of the department so coming back to Charles's point there is at least in this context, at least a quantification of seekers. <laughs> so it was greater than a third were, were seekers, at least, of something. Maybe it was seekers of anything other than working in the emergency department, but anyway. Um, no, in genuine, I think these are, this would, would put some sort of quantification on it. The, we had, um, the other point is you have dropouts along the way, and the, we, we had about 40% dropout in the intervention group, which is the meditation group, and 86%, uh, about a 14% dropout in the, in the control group. They, they might seem high, they're probably okay from the point of view of this is a very complex interac intervention in a very busy emergency department that's in crisis. Staff were moving, so a lot of those dropouts were, were related to the fact that they couldn't, um, you know, they, were they ended up moving to another location, but some of them were dropouts because they just couldn't do meditation. And the other important point that I want to highlight, which is maybe the bad news, but it's true, so truth is always good news, I suppose, is that, is that really only about 40% of people were compliant. In other words, we're adherent medi medi at meditation. And, a lot of studies in, in the area of, of not single-pointed meditation, but mindfulness, and because there's more of them, but even in single-pointed meditation as well, a lot of the reports of adherence are self-reported. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. I meditated twice a day. Whereas on this, we, we, had, them with, we, we, were, we had them electronically tagged. <laughs> <laughs> not quite consistent with the whole concept of meditation, I appreciate. But it was... Um, so we were able to see their heart rate dropping when they meditated. They were using an app to start their meditation. So we knew exactly how many minutes they were meditating for, and that's never actually been measured in any of these studies. So I think that is an important point. And the other thing to say is they were very stressed department. And if you think in your own life, when you're really stressed, do you ever, when you really need to meditate, do you ever stop that practice of meditation? 
So just when you needed to stop it. And, and the reality is these people were novices to meditation. That was one of the conditions of entry into the study. And it was like, we're gonna, and it was me that pushed it, this idea that you, know, you have to do 20 minutes twice a day, that's it. That's the rule, you're, that's the study. And that's really hard. And we did, a, when, when they, we, we did a softer version of it, and their adherence rate was much better when we did a crossover, which is outside of this study, where we crossed over with um, the, the people who had controls the deal was when the study was over, they would then get to learn how to meditate. And we taught them in a different way, in the sense we said five minutes once a day, 10 minutes once a day, 20 minutes once a day. And the, their adherence rates were, were better, but still drop-offs. So, um, we, we measured a whole load of different things. I, I think that there's a really important point, though, in terms of understanding the study. Is our primary endpoint to the study was burnout. The question is, why did we select burnout? Well, one is burnout is so high in, in physicians and nurses, and especially in the emergency department. And the second is there is very clear evidence to suggest that burnout is associated, higher burnout rates are associated with poorer outcomes in terms of safety, patient experience, staff experience, and affordability or cost effectiveness. So if we can improve burnout, there is strong evidence to suggest that we could also improve the other um, dimensions of healthcare delivery. And because of the complexity of the study, because it's in a live environment, that was deemed by, the, uh, by, by our study group to be the most effective way. And I think that is the correct way of looking at it. So could meditation decrease burnout in our staff? even over this short period of 12 weeks? That was the question we were really interested in asking. We had other, some secondary information which I'll present to you, which is not really as important, even though it might be scientifically interesting to some people. So this is the results. So intervention is green. There's three time points. This is 12 weeks, this is six weeks, and this is pre-treatment. Blue is control, okay? Pre, pre the start of the program at six weeks and at 12 weeks. The y-axis is the percentage of staff who satisfied criteria for significant burnout, which is depressingly high at about 25% to start the study. So that was really significant. So this, is not, this is not minor uh, levels of burnout. This is severe levels of burnout. And what we see, what happened during the study is we started off in crisis, but like all crisis, we, we thought we were in the, the peak of it. We weren't. In, in the course of those three months, what happened was nationally, we, we had the, this whole thing got worse because there was a flu outbreak and there was a range of other different things. So the levels of overcrowding reached historical highs uh, during the course of the study and reached historical highs in this department as well as other departments across the country. And this has never actually been shown, but you can see the, the human cost of this on, on staff. So you see the burnout rates going from 24% up to 36%, even just in a three-month period of time. But what happened in the people who were meditating and not even meditating very well, okay, uh, whatever the definition of well is, not, no, sorry, not meditating in a very adherent manner. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> Their burnout rates dropped from 25% down to about 12%. So they end up having a 
from the endpoint here, about a, a third the burnout rate, so a 70% lower burnout rate than the people who meditated, which is a very interesting finding and sort of surprised us because of the adherence rates. Here are a range of other things that we measured, um, and I'll just briefly go through them. What, what, Jenny, what am I like on time? Technically, used up quite a lot, but it's... Oh, right. Okay. So, so here's some other data from it. Um, so not alone was burnout decrease, but we had reductions in anxiety. Um, we had uh, reductions in heart rate. This is not that surprising. We, you know, the heart rate over time significantly reduced. Heart rate reduced during meditation. Well, that's not a surprise. But this may be just of interest, of passing interest to you, is that the, you can see the significance between morning and afternoon meditation. So in the morning, the heart rate reduced to a much greater degree than in the afternoon. And this was highly statistically significant, the difference, which is, is probably um, something that a lot of people would have experienced. It's just easier to meditate, in the, and the depth of meditation is easier in the morning than it is in the afternoon, at least for... Some people, I'm not sure if that resonates for me. Anyway, I'm not sure if that resonates with people. Probably the level of distraction that we encounter during the day is, throws us out more, uh, whereas we're coming at it from sleep. This is a concept called heart rate variability. And it's a measure of, of, of sort of cardiovascular stress. Or the, and what, what actually happens is that the resting heart rate, there's a there's a variability about your resting heart rate. And you wouldn't pick it up by feeling a pulse. You need to pick it up by looking at an ECG machine. And when you're stressed, you're almost full on, and you lose that variability. And so what we were able to do due to the Fitbit devices, collecting essentially three months of every single heartbeat over that period of time, and the fact that the uh, one of the scientists in Fitbit had actually had an interest in heart rate variability and had validated the Fitbit against other heart rate variability measures. We were able to look at heart rate variability amongst the people who were in the study. And what we showed was that the people who were adherent meditators had a significant improvement in their heart rate variability. So their heart rate became more variable, which is, a, which is good. Vari this variability is good. Okay. And the other thing was that they had less interrupted sleep, the people who were adherent meditators, though we did not see that with the overall group of meditators, it was more the adherent. So, so we are seeing an overall effect in burnout across the whole group. Some of the physiological effects, measurements, are, are primarily occurring in adherent meditators. So this is the final bit of data we looked at, and this is for any immunologists in the room. But we, we measured, um, we measured, looked at the immune system, we measured a thing called TNF, and TNF is one of the most important cytokines or proteins in your body to respond to an infection. And uh, in the person who's healthy, your levels are practically undetectable in the blood. So we look to measure this at a gene level, at a mess what's called a messenger RNA. So when your gene gets activated, it makes a thing called messenger RNA, and then that goes and makes your protein. So we measured that in the, in the, in the uh, people, the poor old people in the study. Not alone did we electronically tag them, but we took blood samples 
and measures their response in their immune system. This is a really surprising finding, actually, because what we were looking for is the other way around. Okay? So we thought we would dampen down their inflammation, for want of a better word. And what we saw was that their, this TNF uh, went up by about 70%, very convincingly and consistently in the people who were adherent meditators. And there's very little published on this. And um, what we'd expected it maybe is to come down, because people with chronic disease have high levels of this TNF, and you, you can, when you do various different contemplative practices, you can reduce it. But people haven't looked at it in WOW patients, other than in one other study where they were also doing yoga. And they, they ascribe this increase because of the fact that they might have stretched their muscles. But what it looks like is happening here is we also measure their serum or their, their salivary cortisol. What appears to be happening is that the stress is resulting in, in a, an increase in their baseline endogenous cortisol levels, which is in turn suppressing their immune system. And when they meditate, this is resetting. So it suggests, though it will require a lot of further study, that, that stress is causing you to be immune, mildly immune-suppressed, which I suppose is something we always think about, and that meditation is resetting that and bringing your, um, your TNF levels up in, in back. Now, it may well be that any form of contemplative practice, any form of relaxation therapy could do this, but we're seeing it with this practice of meditation. I think that's all we can say. We can't say that, that you couldn't get it with a massage. So the final thing I, I just want to talk about is, is artificial intelligence and healthcare. I couldn't not say it after Friday. So, so I think artificial intelligence will replace the technical physician, the technician. So robotic surgery is just more dexterous, more reliable than the surgeon. I think computational medicine, or that technical aspect of medicine, the computer at the moment isn't better, but will be, because it'll just get progressively better. So I know the Dr. Watson program you know, um, has whatever it is, can read five million articles in 15 seconds around a topic and give some sort of synopsis. You know, while it may not have real application at the moment, that gets pr progressively refined over the next 20 years or other developments, it will just replace it. It'll be 24-7, it be, won't be get tired. So, so I think the physician technician will not be around. However, the technical solution that will be provided by the AI, which will be a significant advance, it will need to be rested on a bed of awareness both to ensure that the system is working, but also to facilitate the experience of healing, both within the clinicians themselves, but most importantly, within the patient. So to plagiarize Karl Reiner, the physician of the future will be a contemplative or won't exist. <laughs> So what is the contemplative response to crisis? Is it that we exhaust ourselves in thoughts, words, and actions? Or is it that we are fully residing within being, 
and ensure that all our doings and all our actions are necessary and are coming from the depth of our being. Coming from a place where being and doing are in harmony and where being is sovereign over doing. And I'll finish with a quote from an appropriate person, which is one thing we learn in meditation is the priority of being over action. Indeed, no action has any meaning, or at least has any lasting meaning, unless it springs from being, from the depths of your own being. Thank you very much. You can hear more talks and conversations in the media section on our website, wccm.org, or in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. For WCCN, I am Elba Rodriguez.